Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Daigler. Our today's interview is a recording of a Twitter Spaces session from sometime in May this year uh, with Mary Williams, the CTO of the UK-based startup that's called Helix. And Helix, I have to tell you, is a fascinating company that looks for cures for rare diseases. But it does not necessarily want to develop new drugs, which it also does as well, but in many cases it turns out you can actually achieve great results by combining existing drugs and those that don't necessarily have anything to do with the disease that you are looking at. And I was really interested in how it all works and so I invited Mary for the second time to uh, come on our show and talk about uh, these things. Uh, she was on our podcast before, for the first time it was in September 2020, so if you are interested in learning more, I will leave a link to that episode in the show notes as well. Now, let's check out uh, this recording. So let's uh, let's just start, start with the most general question possible. Mary, can you talk quickly about uh, yourself and uh, what you've been doing uh, so far and uh, how you have arrived to become the CTO of Helix? Uh, sure. So um, how far back would you like me to start? <laughs> Uh, let's get all the way back. So you were born all in the way South back. Africa, I'm mistaken, right? Yeah, so I'm South African originally, um, which makes me fluent in many languages. We, we have 11 national languages back home, uh, which I've got some friends who can speak all 11 and then a couple of other uh, languages on top. So I'm, I only speak five. I'm not particularly multilingual by, by South African standards. Um, I started out as a hardware hacker, really uh, didn't couldn't afford much. Uh, built my first computer from uh, from broken parts that had been thrown away. <laughs> uh, but I also was lucky enough to be involved in um, in a project when I was in high school. I, I helped build um, uh, South Africa's first satellite. Uh, so I built a small experiment that uh, that went on to uh, it was called SunSat. Um, but then as as time went on, I got more interested in in software. Studied uh, computer science in the UK, mostly just because they had more. <laughs> processing power um you know as an undergrad i got access to to more uh, processing power than i would have done as a postgrad uh, back in south africa uh and then for completely non-educational and non-work reasons i i ended up staying in the uk I, my wife and i met uh, while we were at university um so yeah and then i've i've had a wide range of roles so i was at procter and gamble uh, the biggest consumer goods company in the world for the first 10 years of my career uh, i then left to go help build uh the government digital service. Uh, built the, I built the team that built Gov.uk. UK, uh, and then since then a, a variety of different things. But yeah, as as you mentioned earlier, the most important roles uh, being CTO of Moo, uh, then of Monzo, and and now of Helix. Um, so I've worked across lots of different sectors, which I, which the way people react tells me is quite unusual. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it kind of sounds to me that uh, all these roles that you ended up at, like none of them are connected to hardware per se. So how did it uh, how did it happen? So did, didn't you want to like go the hardware path after after your uh, after you we went to university and all? N no, um, mostly. Because it had become a bit more commoditized by the time I was at university, but but also my dad's a mechanical engineer, and the only career advice he ever gave me was not to become an engineer, because <laughs> I think he hasn't <laughs> hasn't particularly enjoyed it uh, as a as a as a career, um, and so so I ended up. Uh, I suppose I ended up liking the rapid turnaround time of software. Uh, I think it, there's obviously a lot of fascinating work to do in hardware, but it but it tends to be 
very long projects, um, you know, huge amount of research and, and R&D to, to get new technologies uh, to come to the fore. Whereas with, with software, you can make a difference in weeks or days sometimes. Uh, it, it doesn't always have to be a really long, long-term um, approach. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So can you talk real quick about Helix, uh, your current role? What is the company like? Uh, what does it do? And what's, uh, what's your role like uh, inside it? Of course. Um, so Helix is an AI-driven uh, uh, startup that focuses on finding treatments for rare diseases. So there's 7,000 uh, rare diseases that are already kind of known and documented, but 95% of those don't have an approved treatment. Uh, and so what we what we focus on is essentially trying to find uh, faster and more affordable ways to identify treatments and then progress them through uh, the usual kind of uh, preclinical trials and then clinical trials uh, in order to help those rare disease patients all around the world. Right. And the way I understand it, uh, the approach in general is that uh, you're not necessarily looking for new drugs, but uh, uh, you're looking at ways to treat these diseases uh, with existing and already approved drugs. Yes, it's one one of our strategies for trying to get um, treatments to patients faster is to is to look at all the the drugs that already exist. That includes drugs that are maybe approved in, um, you know, not all drugs are approved in every locale in the world, and so sometimes it includes looking at drugs that have been approved in, say, Japan or in, um, just in Europe, but not in the US or, or similar. Um, but our, our key techniques actually to to focus on combinations. So how can we take whether it's uh, NCEs, new chemical entities, which are what the kind of uh, brand new drugs are, are tend to be called in, in the industry, um, or uh, existing drugs, and combine them together. And that gives us two main advantages. One is you can typically reduce the the dosage, um, and that reduces the side effects that people experience. Uh, and so you can combine multiple drugs to either hit different targets or hit the same targets. And then um, the that you can also get to, uh, you can sort of redevelop those drugs in, in combination to have a um, more beneficial impact than if you just took each individually, if you see what I mean. Um, right. And so the, there's actually, a, it, it's not, it's actually increasingly um, happening around the world. Uh, Contrave, for instance, is a very high, high, um, high profile example of that where they, they took um, what's actually a, a SNRI. So, so, uh, antidepressant effectively, um, bupropion, and um, naltrexone, which was developed originally as a, a treatment for um, heroin addiction and alcohol addiction, and combined those two drugs into, at, at relatively lower doses into, into something that helps with weight loss. So it helps folks when they've got um, sort of food addiction type problems to, um, to, to address them. So, so we're, not, we're not the only people looking at kind of redeveloping drugs in this way, but but it certainly is a much faster route to helping patients because you often with new chemical entities, you have sort of 10 or 15 years right at the beginning of the process um, where you're trying to figure out what targets to hit, how, how to address the disease. And we've managed to bring that down to a couple of months um, through the, the technology platform that we have. And of course, our internal pharmacologists and so on. Right. Now, this sounds extremely impressive. And also, it sounds extremely hard and difficult because this is something that I couldn't even imagine how to approach uh, this sort of task and what you need to look at. So can you just tell me a little bit more about like what the technology is like? How, how do you actually approach this task? Do you, how do you, like, how, how do you do it in general? Yeah, yeah. So, so we actually have a 
a number of different techniques, which is which makes us relatively unusual in the um, you know in the medtech world because a lot of companies are built on kind of one key technique that they or technology that they that they then evolve. But we have a quite broad based um, uh, AI platform. We ingest a whole bunch of, of of data and information from a really wide variety of sources. And then the the primary thing that we that we do is we have a um, we use deep learning and uh, immense uh, knowledge graph essentially um, to find connections, connect different concepts. Uh, you know, we 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 essentially model understanding of all the diseases and understanding of all the drugs, um, and then we can tag in additional data, whether that's genetic information, transcriptomic information, and and so on. Um, and so, m- uh, most of our AI methods are quite dependent on, um, uh, as I say, d- deep learning. Um, but then you once you have a huge knowledge graph you can then uh, use a variety of interesting techniques to um fr- from all all over computer science actually uh, to to f- traverse that graph or even to fill in gaps in the graph so so there's some interesting techniques that use quite similar um algorithms to what say google maps uses to find you the best route between two points um that you can use those kind of techniques to go hang on the these two parts of the graph are quite close together that means that they may be connected, but we don't have an official connection between them. So maybe that's something that we should go look into. And so at a, so sometimes we'll spot those kind of gaps. Sometimes we'll go, hey, based on how all other connections work, we, we think that there is probably a connection here too. And then the advantage we have is we've got an amazing staff of curators, pharmacologists, drug discovery scientists, and, and so all the all the work that my team do to to build this platform and to and to build these tools, they're really the the users of that. And so we're we're not trying to be like computer says this is what we should do. We're trying to augment the capability of those curators and pharmacologists who are already incredibly smart, but use the computer for what it's great at, processing immense amounts of information and finding unexpected connections. Uh, but then having that validated by people who have deep um, scientific and and uh, pharmacological understanding, uh, and sort of that's the the combo of what we got. We also, though, um, as I mentioned, m- many of our methods rely on our knowledge graph, but we do have a number of other methods that look at things like um, the gene, the way that um, genes are expressed in certain diseases, and there are drugs that can change that gene expression. So if you can see what the, it's almost like a, in some ways it's almost a visual method, you, you can kind of see the the shape of the gene <laughs> um, in in somebody who's unaffected by a disease, the shape of the 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 gene how it's expressed uh, in somebody who's uh, who's got the disease and then you can look for a drug that will almost reverse the the difference that you're seeing between those those two things um so when we when we draw it it sort of looks like trying to find the mirror image of a of a particular um transcriptomic profile um but but yeah it, it's uh, <laughs> it's quite it is quite in depth and quite hard to to sort of summarize for folks who aren't uh, immersed in this world. Yeah, um, I'm not, did that make sense? I'm no, trying, no, no, trying. it did. It, it sounds it sounds absolutely fascinating. And uh, I also wanted to ask: so within the company, do you have more AI people, or do you have more uh, like a pharmacologist and uh, uh, scientists uh, people in the domain of uh, of the actual uh, treatment uh, discovery? Um. So. In total technology, to, to, in total tech is about half the company. Um, 
but in actual like specific AI specialists, I've probably got as many AI specialists as there are pharmacologists in the company. Um, so the because obviously there's a lot more than just AI to uh, to make this happen. We have an amazing data platform team who uh, figure out how we can ingest all that information, normalize it. You know, obviously sometimes the same things come up in different sources. You you need to figure out how you um, meld all of that together and, and and make sure that you've got uh, the you know the interpretation of the data we believe is correct when there's you know a drug and it's uh, uh, effects listed by 17 different databases which literally can happen um how do you how do you bring it together uh, and then we also have um in in addition to our ai team that works on the graph we have an nlp team so natural language processing has come a, a very long way in the last few years so where we can't buy or find structured data you know where it, where it already is in the format you'd, you'd find in a spreadsheet or a database essentially um we have natural language processing capability that lets us look at scientific papers, textbooks, all that kind of stuff, and extract structured data from it. So we'll find connections between genes and diseases from uh, publications in PubMed or uh, other scientific journals. Um, well, sorry, PubMed's obviously a, a more of a platform to, to find things, but in a variety of scientific journals. That team and the bioinformatics team are about a third of my group product team. So we increasingly realized that the um, product and design approach used uh, for consumer goods, or, sorry, consumer apps and uh, and websites and so on, there's just a lot of value in that. So, so where in the early years of Helix, we were quite research focused and we kind of build tools out to the point that we were um, kind of happy that they were scientifically valid, but we wouldn't always continue to, to make it as, as usable and useful and accessible to, um, to, to folks as we could do. So, so those product teams have got kind of product managers and, uh, product designers, user research folks and engineers, uh, uh, so that they're understanding exactly how does a curator work? How does a pharmacologist work and making sure that the sort of um, new techniques that we develop are then made as as useful and usable for those specialists as as possible. Right. Well, that's that, that's a lot of thing though within one company. And how big is the company right now in general? How many people? Uh, we're just coming up to ninety, a hundred, that sort of size. Wow. So okay, and you are the CTO of this company, supposedly overseeing all these things that you have just uh, talked about. Can you can you just uh, try to explain to me what what is it that you are actually doing? What does a CTO do in a startup like this that's very sort of deep tech and very research intensive? What's uh, what's your day like? What's your week like? What are you busy with? Yeah. So so the the first thing I want to preface this with is I joined at the point that Helix was really getting ready to scale, and that's kind of my specialty it's what i'm useful at so i think there could be companies that are similar size where the role of cto be very very different to what my role is but my role is essentially to build the organization um and the the structure and the ways of working that will produce really high quality um research ai and um uh, and other tools um make best use of of bioinformatics so the, the bioinformaticians are 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 under me as well um and so I essentially work on the system that produces the systems, if that makes sense. And I think that's quite common when you hit this scaling point that it, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not the, uh, the genius doing the, the AI, AI work, although my, my undergrad, um, 
university background is is AI related. So I'm delighted to get back to being at the cutting edge of, of AI again. It's it's been really enjoyable for me. Um, but my role is a lot more about hiring. Uh, putting the right leaders in place, making sure we're developing everybody who's been with us from from the beginning as as things start to accelerate. There's a, there's obviously a bit of a, um, a sharper gradient, I suppose, as you start to to scale, and you don't want to um, you don't want to thing speed up to to lose anybody who's been on the journey that that long. But they might have been used to a very different pace than the company might have now. Um, and so, yeah, my my week is partly spent as a general exec of the company in, in meetings and, and uh, conversation and collaboration with, with the other leaders, the chief science officer, chief medical officer, and so on. Um, partly leading technology, running tech all hands, uh, ensuring that um, I spend a lot of time interviewing because I think in any any time that you're scaling, we, we've more than doubled in the last year. Um, and we will probably continue at that kind of pace for, for a while yet. You, you end up spending a lot of time interviewing. Uh, and and then I um, tend to work mostly at the sort of strategy level of what should we invest in, how should we do so, what do we buy, what do we build, what's our special source, what's the what are the things that are really unique about us that we need to double down on, and which things can we go, you know what, somebody else can be great at that, and we'll just buy their their tool or their service or um, or collaborate with them. Right. Uh, and so does uh, that that's not down to the kind of level of you know here's my calendar but but it's probably a broadly accurate description <laughs> and you've recently just uh, hired a vp of ai if i'm not mistaken right yes uh andy watson's joined us uh, he was leading um all, all the machine work, learning work at, at dyson uh, and until just recently so yeah he's he's just joined uh, i've also got uh, an amazing uh, fractional CISO, uh, Ella Saita, um, and, uh, and a couple more exciting uh, senior hires uh, being announced in the next couple of months, but but not quite at the point of being able to announce them yet. Ah, too bad. Anyway, so and uh, speaking of the secret sauce that you just mentioned, uh, I was I was wondering. So your approach is uh, uh, this uh, drug combination, existing drug combination. Uh, are there more companies? Are there many companies uh, taking the same approach? What's the competition like uh, in this in this type of field? There are definitely other companies that focus on repurposing. There are com- there are drug companies that focus purely on generics. Uh, you know, developing things that are now out of pa- patent and, and producing them, um, you know, cheaply but hopefully effectively. Um, what's I suppose unique about about Helix is this combination of things that we um, we're using AI specifically for rare diseases, and then we also um, a big part of our success and our strategy is that we partner with patient groups. And particularly in rare diseases, and I say this as someone who has a rare disease, so I'm very uh, intimately familiar with it. A lot of the actual, not maybe not research, but but there's a huge amount that goes on in um, in patient groups that are that are essentially peer support networks. And because rare diseases are, are often underinvested in, and and there are only a few, um, you know, real specialists in the world, a lot of people end up dependent on other patients and or or the families of other patients, the carers of other patients, if it's you know a, a childhood rare disease, um, for advice for help for support for just peer support because it's a it's a tough thing to live with um and and so that's the other key thing that that's actually been a key part of helix's approach since well before ai became uh, so central it is to have these really really strong and and, and really um i suppose uh pivotal 
partnerships with these patient groups because they they've often got um, insight into to what uh, what's working for people the most in terms of their quality of life and actually really feeling much better, reducing the symptoms, making it possible to do more um, or to hurt less or uh, to think more clearly, d- depending on the, the symptoms of the disease. Um, and so in that, in that, you know, that's particular confluence of, of being AI driven, patient inspired and, and rare disease focused, the, there's not really anybody else who's, who's focused in the same way. But of course, if you looked at uh, recursion, they're using computer vision and, and, and AI to, um, to, to develop drugs. M- many people who talk about developing new drugs that they are often starting with an existing drug and, 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 uh, developing it from there as well. Um, but yeah, there's re- recursion, there's benevolent AI and silico that there's a number of other companies who are using technology to make, uh, drug discovery and drug development much faster. Um, and then there's also a load of other parts of the, uh, the process, I suppose. That where there's technology at play. So there's a increasing number of companies um, that are investing in things like uh, remote um, clinical trials. Uh, one of the challenges with clinical trials is like picking which center and having people come to the center all the time. And if you could make that much less uh, intrusive or you know difficult for, for people, um, potentially you could you could run trials not just more efficiently, but but more effectively as well, because you'd get a broader range of people participating and, and your um, ability to um, see a, a, a wide range of um, ethnicities and genders and, and so on would, would be greater if you didn't have to only only uh, recruit people for a trial that are within, you know, within driving distance of this particular uh, trial center. Hey, Mary, uh, sorry to sorry to drop in like this. Hey, Robin. <laughs> it's Robin. Hi. Yeah, sorry. I only caught the last 15 minutes. I missed the first 10. I'm sorry. Um, but good to have you. I uh, hope all is well. Hey, Robin. Um, I had a question about, because you were saying earlier, you're spending a lot of your time interviewing, which I can imagine if you're scaling up rapidly. What, I, what I'm wondering about is, because you're th- doing things differently from everyone else, as you just explained, how hard is it to find the right people for the right job fast enough to, to sustain that, that, that growth that you're going through? I, I mean, I think it's challenging, but I... I, I've been through scaling journeys a couple of times as we, as we chatted about when I came on your podcast, Robin. So, um, one of the, for, for me, there's a lucky kind of confluence of, um, things that help you hire a broader range of people. And uh, we've all seen that, you know, there's so much research shows that diverse teams are more innovative, more successful, more, more likely to, to perform well financially as well. Um, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that's good to, to broaden the, the range of people that you're potentially hiring that's also super useful to do at the point that you're scaling and so rather than what i i refer to as unicorn hunting um you know the chances that you'll find somebody who's specifically worked in rare diseases on ai in in using the particular methods that we use is, is vanishingly small right and so rather than um trying to hunt for for those kind of unicorns what, what we do instead is we go okay well what we don't have to have all of the knowledge and all of the capability in just one person. And that I think this is true just generally. The unit of delivery is the team in modern knowledge work, right? You, you don't have many individuals who are, you know, make or break. What what makes or breaks a company is how high performing the teams within that company are. And so rather than going, you know, we must find people who've got this exact experience, we're tending to instead look for people who maybe they've become a product manager, but Back when they were at university, they did biology or chemistry or, or something similar. We look for um, 
data engineers who've built very built, built data platforms or similar, but in very complex spaces, that space might not have to be um, biomedical. Uh, for instance, so it's of course an advantage if people come in with with medical or, or bio background and and tech ability, um, but like for our for our product team, we were we were looking more for really great engineers who care about users, who want to build the right thing that that helps, and who care about our underlying mission, which is to help rare disease patients at scale. And so, yeah, that's the that's been the the main yeah. uh, adaptation, I suppose, is to stop looking for you know the perfect individual and instead recruit the perfect team. And so, it's you, you then look at who you've got already, and you go, okay, well what would round this team out? Is it somebody with a load of detailed um, biological understanding or is it somebody who's, you know, built user-facing uh, products for, 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 for a number of roles? And so they have a deep understanding of how to um, test things, how to learn, how to uh, use, you know, take user research and, and apply it. Um, and, and so that's the, the broader approach that we've taken. And we've also removed a lot of the, what tend to be just quite, old-fashioned requirements so you know do you have a 2-1 from a top tier university the best engineers i know very few of them have a 2-1 or above from a top 10 university um many of them are self-taught uh didn't even go to university so i, th- I think broadening the um the range of people that you're looking at and being real about what a fantastic team looks like for a particular area rather than trying to find it all in one individual is what, is what we've done and it's paid off we've we've we were uh, last April, there were 22 people in the tech team, and sadly, only two of them were women or non-binary. There's, there's now, um, I think, as of yesterday, 60 of us, and a third of the team are w- women and non-binary. So we've improved representation as well as um, more than doubling the team. Yeah, great to hear. I'm very fascinating. Um, I have a question related to the C word, uh, which I don't know if it came up in the first 10 minutes, but of course, I'm talking about COVID. Um, so, two-pronged question. One is. Have you done any work related to COVID-19? Because it could classify as a rare disease, at least in my mind. Uh, the other one is more operational. Like, how has it affected your own way of working uh, within the company and the operations uh, and the hiring, for that matter? Mm-hmm. Good questions. Um, so we have worked on COVID. Uh, we came up with a, a number of predictions and um, we are... Uh, partnering with with some other organizations uh, to take to take those further um not able to confirm the exact details that there'll be some some uh, I won't tell anyone. fairly soon yeah yeah you, you won't but the pre-recorded thing on space <laughs> <laughs> um in terms of how it's affected us it was it was actually really fascinating so i i was in the mid i i originally was um working uh just a day a week as a sort of consultant CTO uh, for, for Helix, and then uh, Tim and the team convinced me to to, to join ar- around April last year. Um, but it meant that I, I was really working with the team, but I was still a day a week at Monzo in my emeritus role there. I was also doing a, a day a week with a fantastic company called Lab Genius, who, I, who I've worked with for a number of years, and so I got to see. COVID, the COVID reaction and the operational response from a number of different perspectives from those from those three companies that I was spending time in, but also the um, you know charity of, that I'm on the board of and, and 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 a few other places. And what was interestingly different about about Helix was we obviously by the nature and the mission we have a number of people who either have a rare disease themselves or have someone in the family who has a rare disease, often a, often a child um, in, in the case of our employees. And so we were much more cautious than many other workplaces. So we we closed our office 
in I think uh, if I remember correctly early March 2020 and we I think by April had guaranteed to everybody that they wouldn't be asked to return to the office until 2021 at the earliest so people knew in kind of March April when it became very evident as you know or it was evident to us at least that this was this was going to be a big deal and have a long impact and 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 it wasn't going to you know be over in five minutes um so we moved to to working fully distributed uh back last march and and the thing about not requiring people to come back was was just to give people certainty that you know if they if they knew that they were going to be working um from from home for at least that kind of eight nine months then it was worth investing in a better chair and you know setting up their workspace appropriately and those kind of things i think in the in the early days when people didn't really know how to judge uh, how long this would continue, people were, the number of people I saw sort of hunched at their kitchen table um, with a, you know, laptop precariously balanced on, on a cookery book or something uh, just, <laughs> just was a little worrying. Um, and that's, it's worked really well for us. Our, our biggest problem's actually been just helping make sure people take time off i think people are very reluctant to take holiday when they can't go anywhere um and so that's actually been uh, the thing we've been probably most worried about as, as a as a leadership team is, is just making sure that people do take breaks and it's such an important mission people are a little bit prone to uh, overworking anyway but we but we kind of like which rationally we know that that people will um be more creative and achieve more if if they're adequately rested and and so we've we've done a few things to i suppose encourage people to to take time out whenever they can and to nice yeah to damn people working so hard as possible (laughs) (laughs) no but that that makes a lot of sense to me um andrew is kind enough to send me a couple of questions that, that i don't think have been been addressed yet has he had to uh attend some, uh, some urgent family business at the moment. Um, but one of them I, I found really interesting. Uh, when you found and confirmed a treatment uh, through Helix, how do you, um, this is more of a business question, obviously, but how do you commercialize it given that you don't really own any patents for the drugs themselves? So the, the interesting, so if, if something's still under patent, you tend to approach the, the company that owns the patent and, and uh, do some sort of uh, partnership deal with, with them. The interesting thing, though, is that with the sort of combinations approach that we talked about, where we, we take um, existing drugs and redevelop them, or, um, you know, we, we aren't, we're definitely not ruling out developing uh, new chemical entities either. We, we're just finding it most useful to start with, um, with, a, uh, with a known drug. Um, what we, what a lot of people don't realize is if you combine drugs or, or even just use drugs in a, in a new, um, uh, indication is what it's called, so a new disease that it hasn't been approved for before. You have to run the full set of clinical trials, pretty much. You you can sometimes um, go a little faster by not needing to do all the safety and toxicity work because those drugs to be approved in the first place, somebody has run safety and and tox um, studies on them. Um, but yeah, so, so there is recognised value by you know regulators by um, the, by organizations like the NHS who are often the um the eventual kind of payer or buyer of of, of such treatments um that they, they do realize that you know you're talking tens of billions to to get something approved for a for a new indication uh, and so we we achieve that through a combination of 
the sort of combinations approach where you can almost get to it being regarded as a new drug by by com- combining them together. Uh, that comes with a, a load of obviously regulatory scrutiny and, and clinical trials and so on. Um, uh, but also there's just a there's so many of these diseases that there's there's no approved treatment at all. Um, and people are desperate for there to be more approved treatments. Um, there's a lot of people living very difficult lives because, because of the lack of treatments. And so the uh, the approach that we take where we start with known drugs and, and we and we are much better at finding a drug that will be effective um, because of the the platform that we've built and the, and the techniques that we have. Um, so we're, we're able to so, so we we follow a fairly normal process. We we go into preclinical testing in in vitro and then in vivo, Cheers. and then and then we go on to um uh, to clinical trials. And so so you can if the if the drugs are ready available to be made generically, then you can just you can just go ahead um and and then you uh, sell your eventual combination. Um, but if it's under patent, then you then you go and get permission, your license license it from the the patent holder essentially. We'll keep it at this, but it was super interesting. And thank you so much for joining again. And also everyone else for listening in. And uh, hopefully we'll get to catch up uh, soon and uh, track uh, Helix progress itself. For a bit cool. Thank you, Val. Sorry. That <laughs> thank you, Val. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was just for you or for, or for everyone. But yeah, me neither. It seems to still work. <laughs> well, it's anyone, still early, anyone early days. Anyone want to tell us? <laughs> did it, it's did, early did days for Twitter spaces. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately that happens. But uh, thanks a lot and uh, have a nice rest of the day. Cool. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Robin. Cheers. Bye. Bye, everyone. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our show, follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Big, big thanks to Mary Williams for coming on the show and to Robin Wouters for stepping in and finishing the interview as I had to attend to a family situation at some point towards the end of the conversation. Our audio engineer is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinions are always very welcome. Please do send them to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechEU Podcast. I'm Andrew Degler, and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy your week. Bye-bye.